Welcome to CNN Plus. This is the launch of one of the most amazing news streaming projects ever conceived. You're here on the ground floor. We're going to bring you the best in news and commentary, and we're already canceled. Stu does America. BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go to get subscribed to Blaze TV. If you have all that free money from CNN Plus, why not throw it our way? Uh, promo code is Stu to save 10 bucks. Gregory Wrightstone is going to be here today to tell us about the modern miracle molecule saving all of our lives. I'll read some of what, if you, what you guys are doing to celebrate or desecrate Earth Day. But we start by doing the planet. Yes, we're doing the entire planet today. I hope you feel good about yourself, boys and girls. What I kind of wanted to do is look at where we are when it comes to environmentalism, where we're going, and where we have been. And it's difficult to kind of put all of this together because there's so much out there. But I wanted to kind of give you a couple different things you probably haven't heard about when it comes to the environment. And I want to start with a, a, an ongoing problem that has happened with environmentalists for a long time. Basically, the pattern goes like this. They make catastrophic project, uh, predictions. Uh, they, we go forward 10 or 15 years later. We're like, well, I mean, the world doesn't seem like such a terrible place. And then they say, well, first of all, uh, you're not looking enough into the future. Uh, you need to look into the future more. Here's a new prediction for you. That's even worse than the last one. And we all get sidetracked on this and somehow believe it over and over and over again. Well, I just don't buy that construct. I think instead what we should be doing is looking back at their older predictions. And one of the things that you can do to, to assess uh, the, the ability to predict is to look back at someone who's been making predictions and look back at how they did on their last one. Uh, so one of the problems that we've had is a lot of these predictions were made back in like 1990 and maybe even earlier. We go back to the 70s sometimes to talk about global cooling. And the answer from environmentalists is, well, yes, of course, we were way off on a lot of that stuff. But that was old technology, old predictions, long time ago. You can't look at that now. Look at what we said uh, you know, a few years ago. And I think that's uh, a, a complete and total cop-out, first of all. But second of all, OK, let's do it. <laughs> so here's where I want to go. And this is this is uh, coming from Roger Pilkey, Jr. He's a he's he does great work in this field. And, you know, he gets beat up by the left and the right sometimes. Uh, so maybe he's he's in the right place on this. But I want to look at the specific data that came out of 2005 and 2005. There were a bunch of big predictions made. This is right when. You know, in my mind, what I think of when I think of 2005 is right back before Glenn Beck went on television, like back before CNN headline news and that show even started. I remember the global warming thing going on. We would make a point about, hey, you guys said global cooling in 1970 and then say, well, we're making important predictions right now. Well, now we're far enough ahead to see how those predictions kind of came out. And uh, it's a little disturbing if you're going to base trillions of dollars of policy on their predictions. I'll say that. Uh, in climate policy, expectations for the future have long been characterized as scenarios, which, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, allows us to assess a range of plausible futures because human de development is determined by a myriad of factors, including human decision making. OK, so they're going to make a bunch of scenarios up and they're going to say this is what we think could happen in the future. There's going to be some variability between those, but we can look at that at those scenarios and model what the future looks like. So they make these scenarios. 
we can now look at how those scenarios performed in the real world. We now have measurements as to what actually occurred. In 2005, these were just predictions. They were predictions that they wanted us to base policy on. In 2022, we can now look at those predictions made in 2005 and say, how did they do? Really sensible thing. How did we figure out which ones are plausible and which ones aren't? And that's the important thing. Some of these scenarios that they asked, they talked about back in the day are completely implausible today because of what happened between 2005 and 2022. So Roger Pilkey Jr. went through and said, okay, let's determine of these scenarios which ones were plausible. Here's how he did it. There are, of course, a wide range of plausible scenarios for the future, defined as a a variety of future states that are considered occurrable or could happen. How have we judged with which scenarios remain plausible in 2022? Well, we have two methods. One is to look at how the world actually evolved from 2005 to 2020. That provides some real-world data against which to evaluate scenarios. If key elements of an IPCC scenario have already departed from the trajectory of the future envisioned by that scenario, it is then implausible. A second method is to use the best estimates of energy system experts for the near-term trajectory of key scenario elements. If the elements of an IPCC scenario have already departed from a trajectory of the future envisioned by a scenario, then it is implausible. So, you know, you get it here. Basically, we say, okay, what happened from the time they made these predictions to now? You know, are any of these scenarios plausible? And then secondarily, let's look a little bit into the future with people who are in the energy field and saying, okay, this is how energy is going to look going forward. We have quite a collection of results here to look at. And again, this is important because when you make predictions, you need to be held accountable for how those predictions wound up coming out. You can't just make predictions and live in this constant state of making future predictions that are scarier and scarier when the ones in the past don't work out. So let's look at this. There were over a thousand predictions they made. So let's look at how it went. It turns out using our most restrictive criterion and comparing to real world data from 2005 to 2020, only 71 About 6% of the original 1,311 IPCC scenarios remained plausible in 2022. If we use data and near-term projections from 2005 to 2050, only 35, less than 3% of IPCC scenarios remained plausible. Not likely, just plausible. 3% of what they predicted remains within the range of events that could occur. That is quite a rate of failure. That is, I mean, look, if we would have put you back in 2005, I assume you're not a climatologist, though I know we have uh, incredibly high ratings among climatologists, but if you happen to be a climatologist, disregard this next comment. But if you are not an expert and you went back in 2005 and drew random lines on a chart to see where these projections might go, you would have done probably better than all these climatologists in the IPCC who, again, wanted us to use those predictions to spend trillions, trillions of dollars. That is not okay. And this is something we need to learn going forward. It doesn't mean that every single element of of what global warming scientists say is completely false. It doesn't mean that we have nothing to worry about. It doesn't mean that we know exactly what is coming in the future. What it does mean is that a very small percentage of what they believe was possible just a few years ago is even plausible today. And that is a massive, mega, ultra fail. They need to do better than that. They need to do better than three freaking percent. 
Now, what's fascinating about this is you'd say, okay, if you're going to make predictions in 2005, you're going to base policy off of that and scenarios off of that and research off of that. You would go and as time went on and some of these outlying scenarios no longer remain plausible, you would update the research. You'd take those implausible directions out. You'd say, okay, we're never going to get to that level so we can eliminate researching that particular scenario. But that's not what the IPCC is doing. Let me give you more from Roger Pilkey Jr. In the past, the IPCC never evaluated for plausibility its family of scenarios. Think of that statement just on its own. They never evaluated it for plausibility, nor its subset of 11 used for research. In fact, it's 20, it is 2022, and the IPCC still doesn't evaluate its scenarios for plausibility. That strikes me as a bit of a problem. Boys and girls, uh, I, I hate to say it. Unfortunately, many people's view of climate continues to be shaped by implausible futures developed as scenarios many years and even decades ago. Reality is quite different. Yeah, it really is quite different. And it's important to look back at the records that these guys have. Again, you know, if you want to give a it's OK for you to guess at what you think is coming in the future. It's okay to give a scenario that might wind up turning out to be wrong, but your job as a scientist is to come out and own that when it's wrong. Be excited about it. I was listening to an economist the other day, an interview, um, I think it was uh, Tyler Cohen, who was talking to Barry Weiss about the future of the economy and inflation. And he, over and over again, kept saying, well, you know, I didn't get this part right, and I didn't get this part right, and I thought inflation would be high, but not this high. And he went through constantly correcting himself and saying, like, look, I wish I would have seen this part coming. And honestly, his record looked pretty darn good to me. But that is the type of thing we don't get out of scientists often enough, or at least not scientists that hit the mainstream media. You know, many times scientists are saying different things uh, that don't get publicized because they're not sexy. It's not sexy to say, hey, global warming's not quite as bad as we thought it was going to be. Actually, doesn't seem to be maybe our top concern. Maybe we were wrong in 2005. Maybe we've been wrong for a while. That's okay to be wrong, but it is something that we need to look at to actually measure what is coming uh, in the future uh, based on what your predictions look like in the past. Another thing we've heard over and over and over and over again is this idea that by 2030, that basically the world's going to end, right? Um, the world is going to end by 2030 because we're never going to be able to reverse this. And they use a specific study for this. National Review looked into this. Um, Bjorn Lomborg, who's been on the program before, looks at the, how these scenarios work. And it's really important to understand when you hear these terrible things, all the cuts we're going to have to make to our economy, all the life changes we're going to have to make, everything dumb that AOC lets uh, you know, fall out of her uh, mouth, you have to understand what it's based on. So let me give you a little picture of that. We're being told that we must do everything right away. Conventional wisdom, repeated ad nauseum in the media, is that we only have until 2030 to solve the problem of climate change. This is what science tells us. But this is not what science tells us. It's what politics tells us. This deadline comes from politicians asking scientists a very specific and hypothetical question. Basically, what will it take to keep climate change below an almost impossible target, which is about two degrees Celsius? Not uh, surprisingly, scientists responded that doing so would be almost impossible and getting anywhere close would require enormous changes to all parts of society by 2030. Imagine a similar discussion on traffic deaths. 
In the United States, 40,000 people die each year in car crashes. If politicians ask scientists how to reduce the number of road deaths to zero, an almost impossible target, one good answer would probably be to set the national speed limit to three miles an hour. Probably no one would die. But science is not telling us that we must have a speed limit of three miles an hour. It only informs us that if we want zero deaths, one simple way to achieve that would be to uh, through a nationwide heavily enforced three mile an hour speed limit. Yet how to make the trade-off between a low speed limit and a connected society is a political question for all of us. We ran into this problem over and over again when it came to COVID. People like Anthony Fauci would say, well, you need to stay home and you need to throw on 10 masks and you need to never talk to anybody ever again. And you can't go to work and you can't go to school and you can't go to games and you can't go to concerts and you can't do this and you can't do that. And you got to be vaccinated 58,000 times. And look, if your job is to reduce COVID to zero, all of those things might make some sense in some uh, concepts. We've seen that even when you try to keep it to zero, as China has, it's still really difficult to do, but maybe you'd minimize it. Maybe you'd keep those numbers as low as possible. But the question isn't whether you can keep COVID to zero or even as low as possible. The question is, what does society and more importantly, an individual living in that society, what are they willing to give up to get close to zero when it comes to COVID? The same situation exists with global warming. Sure, we can look at global warming and say, well, emissions may raise the temperature over a long period of time slightly, and there may be some negative consequences associated with that. It's possible. It's, it's possible that it's true. Uh, however, on the other side of that, we all have to look at each other and say, we live now and we need to look at what that does to our society now, what it does to the future of our economies and our children and everything else, and what it means to spend trillions of dollars on a problem that we likely can't really change as opposed to spending those trillions of dollars on other things we deem important as a society. Scientists can give us guidance on how to answer those questions, but those questions are answered by you. You are the one who gets to answer those questions. You vote in the politicians who make many of these decisions. And more importantly, as an individual, you act as you deem appropriate for your life. It's true with COVID, it's true with global warming. Look, the truth is that when it comes to the environment, things are getting better all the time. I know it's hard to believe if you watch the media, but it's true. People are breathing cleaner air, drinking cleaner water, feeding themselves better, and living longer lives than they ever have before. With the asterisk, of course, of the pandemic in very recent history. Our problems lately seem to be, you know, how are we dealing with all of that extra time on the planet? And another asterisk, not so well, but the point is we're alive and that's uh, what we can, we can try to at least internalize that as far as the environment goes. Things are improving because in many parts of the world we have risen above mere survival and now can dedicate time and resources into caring about the environment. When you can't keep your family alive, you don't tend to prioritize the environment. It's just a rule of humanity. Caring about the environment is a luxury set aside mostly for nations that have already become wealthy because they embraced capitalism and industry a long time ago. When you hear doomsday predictions about the future, your correct and natural instinct is to try and determine whether those predictions are accurate. And the only way we can do that is to look back at the predictions made by these same people in the relatively distant past. And when we do that, we learn that they were routinely 
routinely alarmist, routinely catastrophic, and routinely, and most importantly, wrong. Also, one more thing, we can celebrate this wonderful Earth Day. And I want you to remember this maybe as the central lesson of the Earth Day monologue today. The guy who created Earth Day killed his girlfriend, composted her body, fled to Europe, and eventually died in prison. Happy Earth Day. So, you know, I like uh, talking crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin, all that stuff. Tika Tawari is another guy who likes talking about it. And when he was talking about it in 2016, people said, yeah, you're crazy. I don't want to hear anything about this. Uh, a lot of people didn't get involved. We were talking about this back in the day as well. And people, you know, their eyes glazed over a little bit at the beginning. Then we saw 2017 and we saw Bitcoin go all the way up to 20,000. Afterward, though, as we know, it came back down and people said, oh, we told you it was a fad. Remember? It was, it's just like tulips. It's just like tulips. Everyone told me it was just like tulips. Did you make your tulip money? And I said, yeah, I made some money on the tulips. But I don't think it's tulips. I think these tulips are coming back. And they're coming back in a big way. Tika Tawari made that argument as well. And I remember him saying $40,000 for Bitcoin. It seemed crazy at the time, even to me. But guess what? Here we are at $40,000 Bitcoin. If you haven't bought Bitcoin, it's not too late. You're still really early on this when it comes to the globe. We are very, very early. Uh, this is the internet in like the mid-90s right now. It's still early. Do your own research, but check it out. Don't, don't wait. Know what you're talking about with this. Tika Tawari has the Palm Beach letter that will help you with a lot of this stuff. It's at BigTReport.com, BigTReport.com. Knowing what cryptocurrency is and how it works is important to your financial future. Tika Tawari's Palm Beach letter at BigTReport.com. I'm happy to welcome Gregory Wrightstone back to the studio. He's the executive director of the CO2 Coalition and author of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know, which is a great read. You should definitely check it out. Gregory, happy Earth Day. Oh, back at you. Nice. I'm speaking this morning at the EarthX convention mm -hmm. uh, here at the Dallas Convention Center. So it's, it's a, a great deal. opportunity to reach out to people that haven't heard this message before. Yeah, because I think a lot of, you know, uh, it's interesting because the Earth Day message, right, we are told this essentially is about being nice to the Earth. But should that be our goal? I mean, isn't the goal to make the Earth a nice place for people to live on? Exactly. In fact, I have a, a, an article that was just published this morning at the Washington Examiner, mm -hmm. and I, I, I ask, is, is it time to kill Earth Day? Because basically, what I went back and I looked... As a, I was in seventh grade at the time in 1970 when this rolled out. Mm -hmm. You're too young to remember it, <laughs> but at that point, if you're driving in your Chevy or Ford, you threw stuff out the window. Littering was rampant. Right. If you had an empty can, you threw it out the window. It was just in our, our air was terrible. Uh, our water, the Cuyahoga River caught fire. Yeah. Lake Erie was labeled dead. Uh, now Lake Erie is uh, it's a mecca for sport fishing. Hmm. Uh, the three rivers of Pittsburgh were soiled oh. and polluted. They now hold a famous bass tournament there. Our air and water now is cleaner than it's probably been since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And according to the EPA, our air has increased. We've got 50% uh, better air than what we did uh, when they started this in, in 1990, going back to 1990. I don't think people understand that. Because I was in uh, Pittsburgh, I don't know, it's going back a few years now, and they had pictures of what Pittsburgh looked like. We were at one of the top of the you know, mountains, yeah, kind yeah. of on the side, and you look down it, and you couldn't even see the city yeah. from where we were standing. Now it's you know, crystal clear. People don't understand that things are improving. 
This has gotten a lot better over the past oh. 30, 40, 50 years. And by almost every metric we look at, our ecosystems from the poles to the equator are thriving and prospering. Humanity's benefiting from this. And it's it, it has a lot to do with, with us doing the right things technologically, but it's also uh, the, the combination of a modest warming. We've warmed about one degree since... 1850. It's mm -hmm. not that doesn't sound alarming to me. I don't know if it does to you. <laughs> not really. Not really. No. You combine that with increasing CO2, and it's 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 driving vegetation growth. We hear about deforestation. No, we should talk about reforestation again. In my article this morning in the Washington Examiner, I looked at uh, since 1953, mm -hmm. we've increased the forested area by 50 percent. And in Pennsylvania, it's increased 500%. That's standing timber, the acres of standing timber in the United States. So our, our forested areas are expanding, not contracting. Uh, and we just, we can go down the whole laundry list. It would take me an hour to go through yeah. everything of things that you're being told that are tragedies, that are disasters that just aren't happening. Fires are, uh, we're 20% of the forest fires, area burned of what it was back in the 20s and 30s. And we're being told just... Your, your listeners, your viewers have never heard that. Yeah, you know, I, I think there, there's something we're really bad at as human beings, which is understanding the long-term trend versus what's in the news right at the second. You know, like we see a bad storm happen. We see a, a terrible fire happen. And of course, the news immediately embraces that this is a result of global warming. Um, but when we look at the long-term trends, I mean, just that you look at the trend of people who have died in climate-related disasters, we're down over 95%. 98 98%. 98%. 98%. It's a miracle. It, it is. It's, it's partially, probably the biggest part of that is warning systems. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a tornado coming. The sirens go off. We know that they're coming. Get to your basement. So, and the same with hurricanes. We can say... Uh, if you were in Galveston in 1911 when that hurricane hit, you didn't know it was coming. And mm -hmm. it rushed. So we've got better warning. That's probably the it's biggest huge. thing. But it's just completely opposite of what we're being told. We're being told that, that natural disasters are increasing. In fact, uh, the UN report, well, actually it was the UN's uh, World Meteorological Organization, we just exposed their study that claimed a five-fold increase in natural disasters. And we took a look at that same data and concluded that since 2000, Natural disasters have been in significant decline. They, they manipulate, what they do is they manipulate the data and torture, torture the data with statistics until they get the answer they want. And that's what they did in this case. We see the same thing with extinctions. Uh, yeah. Extinctions are claimed to be skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. and, and they show charts. Uh, again, we went back and looked at that same data to find that extinctions peaked in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, and they've been in significant decline. They claimed that there will be one million species go extinct over the next several decades. You know what it's been for the last 40 years? The average, again, that would take 25,000 to 30,000 species going extinct over the, each year. It's been two, not 2,000, not 200, two species two. going extinct average over the last 40 years. Oh, well, we'll get to 25,000. No, we won't. The big story there should mm. be we're doing, we being us as humanity in America, are doing a really good job protecting our endangered species, and we should be proud of that. Yeah, that I, I think there's a, there's a line that happens in life where you start off and you start you know improving your life, maybe earning money, starting with technological advancement, and a society does that, and they don't care really about the environment until they can guarantee their own survival and that, that they can flourish. And then these things start to improve because people want them to improve.
And that, I think, is the pattern we've seen over the United States early on. You know, as you point out, we were throwing food, you know, throwing wrappers out the windows and and everything. That stuff changes over time because people start to have the ability to focus on it. Exactly. And that's why I think we should kill Earth Day, because it's evolved. Mm. It, it It should be a celebration of the many benefits we're seeing accruing to the Earth and, and our ecosystems, but instead it's a it's a disaster fest of, of horror stories that are made up. In fact, they had to invent a completely new pollutant, CO2. Hmm. Uh, they call it the demon molecule. It, it should be called the miracle molecule uh, because of the many benefits we're seeing, again, mainly to plant life, but then we have all those other uh, factors that accrue and benefit from that increased vegetation that we see. Crops are breaking records year after year. And it's not just, and it's in countries like India. Uh, our, our research associate, Vijay Jairaj, is from India. And he writes a lot about energy poverty. He's got an article coming out about Indian agriculture, one of the hottest countries on earth. Mm. And they're breaking records year after year. These are good things. And you, know, and you, you plot the CO2 in the atmosphere against you know, age expectancy and population growth. And what you see is a real correlation there. And it is, it's, it, causation is part of it. it. You know, being able to build a society and a civilization around dependable energy is the line between an advanced civilization and one that it, it puts all of its people at risk. Yeah, I use three terms, two, three descriptors when I talk about electricity and energy. It's reliable, abundant, and affordable. Those are the mm. main three, three things. Reliable, abundant, and affordable. Mm. Uh, the only way to get that is with fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, and oil. Nuclear is reliable and abundant, but it's not affordable. Mm. Uh, not the way they do it today. Right. Uh, wind is, you can't describe wind with any of those three descriptors. <laughs> right. it, it's, it's intermittent, it's not reliable, it's not abundant. It's what we call a very low-density energy source. Mm. Um, let me go to uh, what we're dealing with right now, because people are paying ton, a ton of money at the gas pump. The Biden administration goes back and forth from saying, to, they say to their side, to their supporters, we're doing everything we can to stop fossil fuel productions because it's so bad. Then they come to the American people and say, what are you talking about? We haven't stopped any fossil fuel production. We, we, we're trying to get these oil companies to go out and drill more, but they're too greedy, which I don't under, it doesn't make any sense to me yeah. at all. What's the truth there? Yeah, one of the, one of the they, they called the leaders of some of these oil companies up before the House Inquisition, I'll call it, last two weeks ago. Mm. And one of, the, one of the House members there was interviewed by uh, Morning Joe, and she said, uh, well, the companies, these companies need to produce less oil. And then about 30 seconds later, she says, these companies, the reason gasoline's so high, they need to produce more gasoline. <laughs> well, what is it? Right. Make up your mind. <laughs> and, and, and those same companies that were, they were saying two weeks ago, they need to produce more oil. A year ago, before the same inquisition, they were saying, you have to stop production. Uh, it's just incredible that they can say both of these things. And they know they can't get away at this point with telling the American people we're trying to shut down oil supply because they, you know, they, every, they know supply and demand, at least at the basic level. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot, Stu, that's, that Biden has done, the Biden administration, to hurt oil production and natural gas production. Uh, but just this Tuesday, probably the most harmful regulation was announced, and that's the National Environmental Policy Act. Mm -hmm. And what that's going to do is reimpose uh, climate change for every single uh, project that's in construction. Is it roads, bridges? And this will affect uh, construction of of wind wind turbines and Mm -hmm. solar farms. What it does is slows down the permitting process, and 
before this, before Trump rolled back uh, these regulations, it took five years to the Interior Department for a permit to be issued. The Transportation Department was six and a half years. Think what the, if you want to do a project, yeah. you, you can't wait six and a half years for the permit. Right. And, and Trump era and his people roll back those regulations. And so it's, it's, it's going to be a death by a thousand regulatory cuts for a lot of these projects. This is tied into the ESG scores, right, where, we, where they're trying to add in essentially another layer of things they need to do to do these basic projects. That's bad, but mm-hmm. this is completely separate. Okay, okay. And it's, 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 uh, it, it, it goes on to this, this the, the ESG scores has to do with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And, and right. so this is, uh, they're all bad. Okay. It's, it, it's, it's one thing on top of another. Like I say, it's a, a yeah, death of a thousand regulatory cuts. Kind of what I had read about in that they are kind of feeding each other, um, yeah. which is a real problem. Okay, so let me uh, go to how do we solve this. I mean, especially long term. I get the sense, I grew up, in, you know, I was in high school in the 90s. Uh, I watched uh, a lot of these environmental programs. You know, even stuff like recycling, to me, as I got in, even as a conservative, it was so obvious that everyone was supposed to recycle and it was obvious good. And you go and you start looking at the details of these things, and it's not obvious at all. In fact, there's a lot of problems with it. A lot of this is because kids never hear the other side. I know you guys are trying to work on this and trying to present the actual truth here. Yeah, we are. In fact, I'm uh, the Daily Signal from... Uh, Heritage Foundation has a quote from me. Mm-hmm. They called me up and said, well, we want, want your comment. There was a 4-H poll that just came out two days ago where 87% of the 4-H students, these are the agriculture, the ag kids, we sure. call them in high, in high school, yeah. the ag kids, <laughs> uh, 87% believed that there was this looming man-made catastrophe. And they said, well, how do you explain that? And I said, well, it's, it doesn't surprise me because they've never heard the other side of the story. Yeah. All they've done is gotten preached death, doom, and despair, and it's because of us. They've never heard this. And uh, I've, I've had a chance to talk with, with young people. And when they, they hear the actual facts, they just did it on the airplane yesterday, uh, when they hear the actual facts, they go, wow, that's really good. And so I think this belief in a man-made catastrophic warm is a mile wide and an inch deep. But we, we start yeah. with the students. And at the CO2 Coalition, we're now going through an education initiative targeting uh, school children, and we've, it's, I'm so proud of what we've done there. Uh, we've got uh, the, our first comic book uh, was just yeah. published, mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty cool. Once upon a time, the true story of the miracle molecule carbon dioxide. Yeah. So yeah, heads will be exploding <laughs> yes. in the liberal communities. <laughs> uh, our next comic's uh, Simon the Solar Powered Cat, no, uh, and so we've actually actually put together uh, got a, a, a number of gifted. Uh, people that are part of the CO2 coalition. These are PhDs in chemical engineering and physics and the like. Uh, we've put together four lesson plans right now. This is science-based uh, lesson plans without the woke agenda. Mm. Uh, we're presenting science only. Uh, we've got a series of videos coming up. Uh, the, the videos, the, the comics and the videos themselves are are really attractive, done anime style with our talented Brazilian artist. Mm. And so it's the kids, we've tested them out. Uh, just love them. They, they they went through and they go through and look, read the book. And it's, it's, I'm really proud of what we're doing. And it's important to reach the, the school children with the true information. That's yeah. where we start. Because uh, I think, you know, pe- people maybe on the right side of the aisle have focused so much on universities over the years, which is great. I mean, and it, there's a lot of problems there. But you can't abandon K through 12. We're seeing the effects of that. And once they get to university, they're, a lot of them are already ruined. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, they've already gone down this road. So these things are doctrine to them and they can't understand that there is another side. Yet none of them would choose to live 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. None of them would choose that. They want to live now, yet they think they're in such a, a, such a tortured yeah, time. They, exactly. They live in the best of times, yeah. not the worst of times, but they're being told they will live in the worst of times. And many of these, these kids actually do believe they're not going to grow up to be adults or have children. They're electing not to, the, the 20-somethings are electing not to have kids. They don't want to bring kids into this world. And that's well, terrible. And, it's, and again, if we look at the actual science facts and data, it's just the opposite. I and mean, like I said, it's the Earth's ecosystems are thriving and prospering. Uh, and we see that through, uh, I like to talk about looking through Earth's history and human history to find that other warming periods that were warmer than today were hugely beneficial for mankind. Crops were abundant, great empires arose, life was good, and it was the, it was the cold periods, and when it started getting cold, it was just, they were just horrific that led to yeah. crop failure, mass depopulation. Uh, they, they went by the names of the Greek, or Greek Dark Ages and the Dark Ages for a reason because there wasn't much written during that time. Uh, the first great civilizations rose up during the Bronze Age, a really warm period, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and then all of those empires crashed within about 100 years. It was called the Late Bronze Age Collapse, mm. and it was, a, it was a sharp decline in temperature that probably led, led to that. Well, I mean, this is, I can tell you right now, I mean, I, I grew up in the Northeast and I live in Texas because I wanted it to be warm instead of cold, too. Uh, that's just me. Uh, Gregory Wrightstone, uh, it's Earth Day. What, a, what better day to celebrate with Gregory Wrightstone than Earth Day? Uh, the book is an Incon uh, Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Also, the, uh, where can people get the, uh, the comic book if they want to? Well, we're, uh, it's been published. We've got, I just got 5,000 delivered. We're working on a delivery system right now. I've got okay. to figure that out. So keep an but, eye on the website. And we're going we're gonna to have, I wanna, we're going to have a series series of four of these is a package set to go out. Really important. Yeah, it is. Really important. Gregory, thanks so much. Great. And happy Earth Day. Thank you. Back at you. <laughs>
The state legislature just approved $450,000 to get researchers in the field where the goal of finding out who these drivers are, where they live, what they drive, how much they spend on gas, and what might induce them to switch from a gasoline vehicle to a battery electric vehicle. These are people who drive, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles uh, every year, something like 30,000 miles a year. The, the electric car thing is going to be a tough sell for people driving that much. There's a lot of charging that needs to go on if you're doing that. Uh, but that's where uh, the dollars in Washington state are going, not to help you with your gas prices, but to study why you're using so much gas. Um, Earth Day in 1970 was the fr- that was the first Earth Day. Gosh, that was 52 years ago now. 52 years from the first Earth Day. And Axios has put out a map of the temperature change since the first Earth Day in 1970. And this shows the map of the United States with all, I mean, as you'd expect, right? They're not going to tell you the story if it was any different. It's all red to varying degrees. The temperature is up all across the United States. What's interesting about this map in particular is that the people at the first Earth Day in 1970 would have been thrilled by this development. They were all convinced there was going to be global cooling and a, global, a new ice age. So the fact that it's warmed slightly would have alleviated their worst fears back in 1970. Of course, that whole narrative changed uh, over time. Now, the people who go to Earth Day and celebrate it are the big celebrities. They are the big ones. Fox News has a story out about uh, maybe these guys aren't so consistent with their views and what they say uh, and what they do. Mark Ruffalo, uh, during the 2014 climate march, he was asked if celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio were the best spokespeople to fight climate change since they had significant carbon footprints. He said, oh, brother, that is a question you shouldn't be asking here today because that defies the spirit of what this is about. Yeah, I bet it does. Uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, um, they say they're not perfect, but they do talk about the climate a lot. Unfortunately, they flew on a private jet uh, multiple times and they have obviously giant uh, carbon footprints. AOC, uh, instead of taking Amtrak, which she used 18 times during her campaign, she flew 66 times in one campaign. The Green New Deal girl, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, went to a big nations, uh, United Nations climate summit in November, and he had, of course, his private jet valued at $65 million parked at the airport. Michael Moore has a $2 million property in Michigan. He was also uh, called out for not even knowing that electric cars could be, at times, just as bad as gasoline-powered cars. And Leonardo DiCaprio, he also, of course, has multiple yachts and homes and, of course, private jets as well. It's just all about consistency. That's what's really going to help the planet, boys and girls. One of the ways I like to lower my carbon footprint is to buy as big a house as possible, because I feel like the more land that's covered by my home, the less available earth that the sun can shine on and heat up. I haven't done the math on that exactly, but if you do what I do to help the planet, what you do is you just turn the air conditioning on full blast and open the windows to cool the outside down. It's selfish to keep all that cool air inside. If you want to buy a big house like me and my giant air conditioning with giant open windows all the time, you need to have a real estate agent that you can trust. And that's why you need to go to realestateagentsitrust.com. It's true. If you have a real estate agent you can trust, they won't talk down to you about your giant carbon footprint that you've just purchased. They'll be cool. 
And you know what? I've talked to a lot of the real estate agents uh, that participate in this program. These are smart people, the best agents in their area, and they're cool. A lot of them are big fans of the show, support the show, and share values with you as well. You can get more information at realestateagentsitrust.com. Go there now, realestateagentsitrust.com. Head over to Facebook and our page, Stu Does America, and mark this show as one of your favorite pages. Yes, if you do that, this is the thing. You'll actually get our content. It's amazing, at least until they change it again. Uh, just go there and mark us as a favorite, and you'll get the stuff that we put out there. And I love when you guys participate in this stuff because we decided to put up a quick question. What are you going to do to celebrate Earth Day? Are you going to do anything? Uh, here are some of your responses. Yes, our longtime family tradition for Earth Day is to continue to live on the Earth that's, that's a great one. Earth Day is the only day of the year I go out of my way to litter. <laughs> Time to fire up the lawnmower and check out the, uh, check out the running of my chainsaw. I plan on posting my favorite Earth Day scripture. The earth has enough and to spare. Uh, Noel writes, uh, I always burn a tire for Earth Day. My smoke signal in solidarity. That's the best way to do it. I always like to burn some styrofoam every Earth Day. That's just, just how I do it. You know, we all have our traditions, right? Um, Aaron is having a baby. Uh, I guess scheduled on Earth Day, which is pretty cool because that's what's killing the Earth more than anything else. Having children is the worst thing you could do for the Earth. The left does not want you to have any children, so make sure you listen to them or completely ignore them. And finally, Diana writes, since the man who started Earth Day chopped up his girlfriend, left her in a trunk in the closet of his upstairs apartment, and composted her, by the way, and fled to France, I won't be doing anything for Earth Day. That is understandable, but I will say it's important to include the fact that he did compost his girlfriend. If you're going to murder your loved ones, it's important to compost them safely so that the Earth can heal and feed off of their corpses. So that's just my little tip uh, for Earth Day. If you're going to murder someone, make sure to compost the body. We uh, launched Stu Does America Plus in honor of the failure of CNN Plus because we just thought you needed to be involved in such a successful thing. So uh, it's available now. If you go to StuDoesMerch.com, use the promo code Stu10. You can save 10% off all of your merchandise. This goes from everything from senility now, wokeness is weakness, Andrew Cuomo is awful, it's great, but also the CNN Plus uh, parody uh, Stu Plus mug, which I think you will appreciate. We need to get one of those for the set, by the way, absolutely as fast as we can. Um, also, I want to tell you, I have an update on my car situation. We're talking about uh, a car that I've, I ordered over eight months ago. It is basically the least eco-friendly vehicle on the market. Uh, I want you to know that I am absolutely destroying the environment with this car if it ever shows up. Well, so far we've had Joe Biden's economy to deal with and uh, it has not come in eight months. However, just the other day, Got an email. We have a target production week for the, the vehicle. That's right. Yes, in theory, at some point in June, this car will arrive. Fingers are just crossed more ways than you can imagine. Uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to ruin the environment together. Uh, out on the roadways, and that'll be a lot of fun. I uh, also want to tell you um, to just kind of take a moment uh, this Earth Day. I know we've been screwing around a little bit, uh, but obviously Earth Day only comes once a year, and it's important to always remember on this Earth Day that the guy who founded Earth Day murdered his girlfriend, and then he chopped her into little pieces, 
and he put her in a trunk and composted her and then fled to France and then lived in France for a long time until he was finally brought back and put in prison for many, many years. And then on, I think it was April 7th of 2020, right at the beginning of COVID, died in prison. That is your Earth Day reminder this year. So remember that as people try to celebrate it. Just think of that poor woman who was murdered by the founder. We'll see you next week.